Welcome to the sermon podcast from Compass Church. In this message from May 9th, 2021, Pastor Craig Kidder brings part two of the What is the Bible sermon series. Pulling from Genesis 3 through 11, Pastor Craig looks at the fall and how God responds to us when we are at our worst. Listen in as Craig walks us from the garden to Babel, helping us to understand ourselves and correct our view of our Creator. For more information, please visit compassefc.com. Here's Pastor Craig. Thanks for being here this morning. I'm really excited you're here uh, because we're in a, a new series where we're, we're talking about what is the Bible, right? And, and uh, last week we talked about how we want to back up a little bit and we don't want to miss the forest for the trees, all right? If we're driving on a road trip, you and I, from Portland, Maine to San Diego, California, because let's be honest, you're not going to go the other way. But if we're going from Portland, Maine to San Diego, California, it's super helpful that we know how to get from Pennsylvania to Ohio. That's great. But if we don't back up and look at where we're going, do we need to go from Pennsylvania to Ohio? Maybe we want to take a southern route. You know, what, what's, what's the big picture, all right? We love the Bible around here, but we might be reading it wrong if we just kind of just look at all these little branches and we never back up and see where this, this beautiful story is taking us. So that's what we want to do. And just like we just worshipped and it was a deep meaningful worship experience where we're just like asking God, like, hey, speak to us. Speak what is true. There's surrender that we're experiencing. This time is worship as well. And I want to be your worship leader for the next few minutes uh, as we dive in Scripture and see the King in his beauty and the beautiful story that he's laying out for us. And as well, not all of us know the Bible as well as we'd want to, and we want to create a safe space where we can learn. All right? So there's a lot of us that have questions, and, you know, sometimes it's like, oh... I don't know if I can ask this. This is a safe space to learn. And we're all students here, all right? Nobody has arrived. We're all learning together, all right? Speaking of multisensory, to help us learn together, we've got some hand motions, all right? So if you would stand with me. Rise. All right. These hand motions are where we're going for the next 12 weeks, okay? You ready? Everybody, don't hit your neighbor in the face, okay? Creation. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Just re- I'll say it, repeat it back, all right? Here we go. Okay, so let's try again. Ready? Creation. Creation. Great. Fall. Fall. Abraham. Abraham. Exodus. Exodus. Torah. Torah. David. David. Prophets. Prophets. Jesus, and his kingdom. Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus and his cross. Church, Paul, Revelation. Awesome. You can have a seat. Well done. Well done. What do Taylor Swift, Isis, and the serpent from Genesis 3 have in common? What do Taylor Swift, Isis, And the serpent from Genesis 3 all have in common. They have the same marketing strategy. Okay? A couple years ago, Taylor Swift went viral uh, when she was about to release her new album. Here's what she did. So people on social media, like totally normal people like you and me. All right? Like Brittany in, in Boozman, Montana. Bozeman, Montana. All right? She's posted a picture of herself with a new sweater. So Brittany's like, hey, how's this sweater look? All right? And, you know, Lindsay responds, looks great. You know, Kyle's like, it's fine. Right? And then Taylor. That sweater is so fresh. There's that little blue check. Can you imagine? Like, like honestly, can you imagine just like this totally mundane tweet you send out there and then one of the biggest celebrities in the world sees you and comments on that? Obviously, that goes viral. It's all over the news. People are like, Taylor, she's so normal. She's so relatable. That's so great. And it raised all this awareness about her. And then as her new album came out, people were like, oh, I love Taylor. She's so cool. She's like one of us, right? Okay? Totally fine. All right? Great. We're good. Not, please don't misunderstand me. Okay? I'm not in any way, shape, or form trying to knock Taylor Swift. Taylor's great. It's hard to write a pop song. Okay? Taylor does that. Problem, though, fast forward a couple years, uh, the top ISIS recruiter, he's a a British hip-hop star. I know, the world is weird, okay? Very odd. But he's a top hip-hop star, and he uses the same same exact method 
for marketing that Taylor was using. So here's what, but, but a little more nefarious. So they're using adware and they're tracking people online. And so they're watching like somebody's like a factory worker in Michigan, right? And this factory worker, he's concerned about unemployment, immigration. And so what they do is they see his internet search history, see what he's concerned about, and they start putting memes in his social media feed that just stoke those fear, right? They're coming for you. Oh, you're going to lose your jobs. And then they found out based on his internet search history when he's most susceptible, when he's most depressed, okay? And it's about 11 o'clock at night. So here's what they do. They, find out, they get this guy kind of cranked up, find out he's really upset at 11, and then they pop in on his social media. Hey, Kevin, right? And they could radicalize people that way, all right? Why, why does that work that way? Why, I mean, these are kind of like silly things. Why do they work? I don't mean to hurt your feelings, okay? You and I, I'm with you, okay? We, us, you, me, us, okay? We are not as logical and as driven by reason as we think, okay? Okay? Just to illustrate this, the last pair of pants you bought, did you sit down and say, okay, here's my budget, here's my wardrobe, I have three pairs of pants, I really only need you know, th two pair of pants, and so based on, that's ridiculous, but based on budgeting and based on needs and based on laundry, how I'm going to space it out, I need to get this color khaki based on this. No. You're at the store, and you're like, oh, this is so cute. I want it. Great. Boom. All right. Why? Market American marketing gets this. They understand this. Our two most primal needs are I fear and I desire, and marketing is based on that. All right. FOMO. 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 What's FOMO? Oh, okay, ironically, FOMO is the fear of missing out, right? So here, here's what happens, right? So the other day, uh, I'm, I'm reading an article, and it's like, it, it talking about the cut of jeans that I really like. It's like, those are so out. If you're wearing that cut of jeans, that's so 2019. What do I do? I get angry. I'm like, what? How dare you say are you saying I'm wearing dad jeans? Oh my gosh, am I like, am I, am I becoming like my dad? Like just, you know, society moved on without me and oh my gosh, are they saying I'm irrelevant? Whoa, and I'm, before I know it, I'm on Levi's.com and I'm like, whoa, wait, oh, I see what happened here. Fear, right? I have, they tapped into my fears, okay? We can be very hard. We can be very hard on Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. We can look back at them and be like, yo, what's wrong with you? You were walking with God in the cool of the day. Life was great. Life was good. And then a talking snake is like, hey, don't believe God. And you're like, okay. Right? If I was there, if I was there, this would be a different story. And humanity would not be like sent into chaos. All right? That's misunderstanding. That's still believing that we are rational, logical people. All right? This text that we're about to read opens up by saying this. Now, the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed, okay? Naked has to do with this idea of vulnerable, right? They're totally exposed. They're vulnerable. Innocence, okay? They're naked and unashamed. And the serpent, so that pits these two things beside each other. The man and his wife are naked and not ashamed, and the serpent is more crafty than any animal of the field that the Lord God had created. The word for naked and the word for crafty are almost identical in Hebrew. One is arom and one is arum. Same letter. It looks really similar. And it actually kind of works in English, okay? Nude and shrewd. All right? So they're nude. He's shrewd. So they're vulnerable. They got wants. They got needs. And he's smarter than them. All right? What, 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 was, what did they want, right? They had just been given the charge by God. God had created the world. And he gives them planet Earth to rule. He says, hey, I'm God. You be with me. And hey, do what I do. Here's planet Earth. Rule it. That's a big promotion, okay? That's overwhelming. That's like, whoa, we got to rule the world. So, and they're vulnerable. And they want something. They want wisdom. And so someone's coming to them who's wiser than they are. And they're like, okay, okay, okay. Why? Because they're driven by wants and fears. And that's how the Satan sends the world into chaos. I grew up in post-Christian New England. Okay? And, and I came of age at a time, I remember I was preaching at a place. I hadn't preached that much. I'm just getting started. 
and someone grabs me and says, hey, hey, man, uh, don't talk about sin. I was like, why? Like, I don't know, it just has a lot of baggage. Just don't, if you can, don't talk about sin, okay? That's post-Christian New England. That was where I was preaching. I mean, I was preaching in California that time. You're right? Don't talk about sin. A, a silver lining in the moment we're in right now is you're not really hearing those voices anymore. Because everybody knows something is wrong. Something is wrong. The Shire burned down. What happened? I never read Great Expectations. Okay? So somebody correct me if I'm wrong. But in Great Expectations, come on, Dickens was a jerk. We all know that, right? But in Great Expectations, uh, is it Miss Havishaw? Havisham. So what is it? Havisham. Havisham. Okay, that's so British. Miss Havisham uh, is about to get married. It's her wedding day, and her soon-to-be husband writes a letter that says, hey, at 840, I'm out. I'm bouncing. So Miss Havisham is wearing her wedding dress, and what does she do? She runs around the house, and she, uh, she stops all the clocks. And then Dickens describes this woman who lives in her wedding dress and gets old. And just the dress gets yellow, gets heavy, it gets weighed down. That's us if we don't honestly look at the fall, at what's wrong. And I agree with these friends who said, hey, please don't talk about sin. There's a way to talk about sin that's not life-giving, that's just guilt-inducing, that's a heavy load that people put on other people, all right? But we want to look honestly at sin because when we look honestly at sin and the fall and God's character in this, God is so, oh, the way he responds is beautiful, okay? When we see who God is, how he responds to us at our worst, and then his answer to the fall, I mean, we get new life. It's just, it's invigorating, all right? And it, and it gives us the courage to then talk honestly about sin. All right, we're not just going to talk about sin with no solution. All right? Hey, everything's bad, everything's awful, and good night. All right? Right, even in the story called The Fall, we see God's plan, God's grace, God stepping into a tough space, him taking the first move. We see grace, him, him, him stepping in for our rescue. We see that right on the opening pages. All right? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read the story in Genesis 3. We're going to start in Genesis 2, but we're going to read the, the fall, okay? But here's what you have to understand, all right? The fall, what we call the fall, is not just Genesis 3, an interaction with a man, woman, and a snake. The fall refers to a unit of, of the text of Genesis that goes from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, okay? That whole unit is the fall, Okay, so it starts with these two people, and then it just gets out of control, and it's a downward spiral, and it lands at a place called Babel. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna like really just breeze through that. It's gonna be great. What is that? Nine chapters. You know, hopefully you brought lunch. Um, hopefully Lucille stays calm. Um, but. We're going we're gonna to walk through these chapters and see, see what's going on with the fall because, 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 because. We're going to see God's answer to the fall. And God's answer to the fall, I'll just tell you up front, okay. He creates a new society that the goal of this new society is to make Babylon a ghost town. Okay. That may not make any sense right now. We're going to unpack that. But our identity as a church we are reverse the curse people, okay? Reverse the curse. That's key to our identity. We, life, life was threatened in the garden, but it was not lost. And we, as people, our, our objective, our calling is to make Babylon a ghost town, okay? You're like, yeah! All right, hopefully you'll get there at the end, all right? May not make a ton of sense right now, but that's where we're walking. So we're going to read Genesis 3, and then we're going to read Jesus' answer to Genesis 3 in Acts chapter 2. And it may not make any sense, and that's okay. That's totally cool. We're going to try to unpack it. So Genesis chapter 2. You got a Bible? Genesis chapter 2. It's the beginning. It's the opening, you know, 
Just drop it open. There's going to be some intro stuff. Genesis chapter 2. All right? Genesis chapter 2. Starting verse 25. Genesis 2, 25. And then we're going to read Acts 2 after that. So here we go. Ready? Adam, or excuse me, the man and his wife were both naked. They felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We can eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That's the problem. The shire just burned down. Here's God's answer in Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a, la- a sound, like the, vo- the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were, staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, uh, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we heard them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. This is the word of the Lord. God, help us to see. God, it can be hard to think about sin. We love prophetic words for others. But the story of the fall is an invitation for us to see ourselves standing before these trees. Which tree are we going to eat from? In trust and in surrender, are we going to eat from the tree of life with you? Or are we going to define good and evil for ourselves? Father, help us to listen and to sit at your feet today. In Jesus' name, amen. We are about, we are about to go strolling through easily, easily, the strangest section of the Bible, okay? It starts with talking snakes. There's these genealogies where people live for like a thousand years. Uh, There's a global flood. It's weird, okay? And, And to say that it's not unusual is 
to not be honest. It's to, to flatten the Bible. The biblical text gives us an invitation to wrestle, to wrestle with the text, okay? So let me just say this really clearly. The Bible was not written to you, but the Bible was written for you. Did you hear the difference? The Bible was not written to you, but the Bible was written for you. So Moses sitting down to write Genesis is not like, all right, these people, hey, dear residents of the Midwest, all right, I'm going to do some explaining because it's a little foreign to you, so here we go. No, no, no. The Bible was written to an ancient people on the plains of Moab, ready to go into the promised land, but the biblical authors did have in mind generations to follow these people are going to look to this book as authority, as guidance. So it's written for us, with us in mind, but it's not written to us, okay? There are stuff that's weird in this passage, okay? Just... If, if you get time this week, just flop open Genesis 6 and read the first few verses. And it's like, there's giants. There's like sons of God, daughters of man. It's like, what? What is this? And to just say, oh, no, 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 I get it. We're fine here. Nothing to see here. It's to not be honest. And it's to miss the beauty of this narrative. There is stuff to struggle with. All right? Right out of the gate, talking snakes. And right out of the gate, magical fruit. All right? Let's wrestle with that for a little bit. Okay? What is exactly going on here? What's happening when the people are eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What does that mean? Here's fundamentally what I think it means. I think it's a core human temptation to to redefine good and evil on our own terms rather than to trust God's definition of human flourishing. Temptation is to redefine good and evil on our own terms rather than to trust God's definition of human flourishing. Think about the story so far. What's happened so far? God speaks and what comes about because of his speaking? Life. Life. And God sees what he creates, this life he creates, and says it's good. Okay? And then he puts the man and the woman in the... And what, listen to what Eve says. Listen to what Eve says when the serpent shows up. So she listens to the serpent... But listen to what, what happens, what the, the narrator says about this woman. It's in verse 6, Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good. What does that sound like? It sounds like Genesis 1. God made something and saw that it was good. Now people are stepping outside of God's word and making judgment calls, they are determining, they're redefining good and evil on their own terms. And that is a fundamental human temptation. Look, when, when, when the men and women, when it says, it says that they heard the sound of the Lord coming, they were afraid. Okay? The Hebrew word for sound and voice is the same word. It's like a pun in Hebrew. So what has God's voice done so far? It's just been good. It's just been life-giving. It's just been creating and blessing. He creates, he says it's good, and he blesses animals. He blesses people. Okay? Why now are they afraid of his voice? Because they stepped outside and they redefined good and evil on their own. They believed the serpent. Okay? Because the serpent comes to them. And he twists God's words to make God seem harsh. That's so important that you hear that. We fundamentally, deep in our hearts, believe God to be harsh. We believe he is mad at us. He's just waiting to crush us. And we just better be on our best behavior because the hammer is about to drop. I'm not trying to say there's not injustice in the world. I'm not trying to say we don't do things wrong. But we fundamentally believe that God just puts up with us. He doesn't want to set things right. And, and he just does it because he has to. That's not, that's a God of your own imagination. As one poet said, God made man in his image and we've been returning the favor ever since. Right? That's that. In Genesis 1 and 2, all God has been is life-giving and good and blessing. And the Satan twists God's word to say, no, whoa, God's holding back from you. God is cruel. And so 
They don't eat magical fruit. What happens is their eyes are open and they understand good and evil because they experienced evil. They stepped outside of God's word. Instead of receiving, instead of trusting, they said, let's take matters into our own hands. I love what John Silhammer says about this. He says that the author has shown that happiness does not consist in being like God. Rather, happiness consists in being with God. They missed it by a preposition. They had these wants. They had these fears. We've got to rule the world. We've got to do a good job. And Satan's like, God is harsh. He's holding back from you. Whoa, what, what do we do? We've got to be like God. No, you don't. That was never part of this bargain. You just need to be with him. And in being with him, we become like him. But the goal is just to be with him. And so they stepped outside and they took matters into their own hands. Now, do you see, do you see the link, what they wanted? The serpent shows up, he's wiser than they are. And they know that. They listen to him, right? Then God comes. Now, listen to how Adam and Eve speak to God. Listen to this. This is verse 9. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. You were in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Listen to this. Ready? Ready? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Is that true? Yes. Is that the whole truth? No. Who talks like that, though? The serpent. See what's happening here? He took his strategy. Of like, hey, you're not going to die. Did they die? Did they drop dead? Did they, have, did they experience cessation of a heartbeat? No. But did they die? Yeah. Life is more about, more than just having air in our lungs. It's about being with God. And they separated themselves from God. And we have, to, we have to read the Bible like that because, look, there's a conversation. It's not a helpful conversation. Someone's going to ask you this. People have asked me this. I'm going to tell you what to say when people ask you this not helpful question, okay? Do you read the Bible literally? Okay? Do you read the Bible literally? Here's what you can say. All right? This is, this is my gift to you. You're welcome. What, I have no idea what you mean. What do you mean? What does that mean? What in the world does that mean? Do I read the Bible literally? I have no idea what you mean. Okay? Just say that. You're welcome. It'll help you just save friends, avoid lots of like pit holes, potholes. You're welcome. Okay? Here's why. All right? In John 10, here's what Jesus says. Right? I am the door. Is Jesus a literal door? Okay. And this is C.S. Lewis. Jesus may not be a, a literal door, but he is a real door. All right? Jesus may not be a literal door, but he is a real door. When we read these, this Genesis 3 through 11, we're going to come into things where we're like, what is happening? And then we get in these unhelpful conversations. Do we read the Bible literally? Oh, no, maybe we spiritualize things. Maybe that's the answer. No, 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 no. We do just what we did with Jesus. We try to get at the authorial intent. What is the author trying to say to us? The author is trying to, in these opening pages of Scripture, show what it looks like to not live your life in accordance with God's word. To define good and evil on your own. He's trying to show us what that looks like and how it happened with the first people. And the chaos that happens. And then, here's where it gets really, really good. He's trying to show us how God responds. All right? So we've already talked about what's the first thing that God says. They hear the sound of, his, of him coming and they're afraid. And what, how, what does God say right out of the bat? Where are you? He's looking. He's stepping out in love. He's looking for his creation. That's awesome, but it doesn't stop there. The awesomeness continues. So the fall is then culminated with this, like, it's a trial. 
what happened? All right? What, what, what just took place? But even listen to God's posture in this. Listen to this, okay? He says this. This is what he says. Where are you? I heard you were coming. I ran away. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten? God's asking questions. He's not coming saying like, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I was gone for like 10 minutes and you just threw the world into chaos. Are you serious? You guys are so dumb. You need me around. What in the world? He's asking questions. That's really cool. Gets better. All right. We start this thing, we start this series where he, goes, he talks to the man, talks to the woman, then he talks to the serpent. And we start hearing curses. Okay? Look down in your Bibles with me. Look at verse uh, 14. Okay? And look at verse 17. That's where God curses. All right? Who or what does God curse? Who or what does God curse? What was it? Who was it? The serpent. And what else? The ground. The serpent and the ground. Why is that important? Who does God not curse? The man and his wife. Okay? Don't miss that. Cursing in the ancient Near East, especially in Genesis, is about like removing, like blessing is like, hey, teeming with life, flourishing. And then cursing is like we're, we're taking all that away. We're removing a life-giving source. The image of God is not lost. Okay, men and women, everybody that you meet. Let's say your neighbor is like the worst person in Colombia. All right, like they shoot their own fireworks on the 4th of July. Like they're just awful human beings, okay? Okay? They still are in the image of God. It's not lost. Everyone you meet, we cannot, we please stop this us versus them mentality. People are not the enemy. They are victims of the enemy. I go out of my way to call the Satan the Satan, not Satan. Satan is not a name. Okay, it's not like Carl. And then Carl showed up. All right? No, the Satan means the opponent, the adversary, the enemy, the accuser. His identity, what is true about him is that he stands opposed to you and me. That's his fundamental identity. And how, what, what's the strategy he uses? Lies. Making God seem harsh. Making God seem like he's out to get us. And lots of people you and I know believe that. And the goal is not to beat those people over the head and drag them into church so they're sitting in here just as bored as we are. The goal is to rescue people. We are, this, is, this is the curse and we are reverse the curse people. Okay? All right. Now, that's just Genesis 3. Things start to get worse. Oh, wait, I skipped a section. All right. I can't skip this. Genesis 3.15. Theologians call it the Proto-Euangelion. It's the first gospel. We get this amazing, right? We said God keeps getting awesome. We get this amazing promise in the middle of all this chaos. What's the promise we get? An offspring of the woman. So a human is coming who's going to deal with the accuser, with the enemy. And what happens? What's the promise? He's going to stomp you on the head, but you're going to bruise his... Okay, I just have to make a slight observation about this because it gets missed a lot when we talk about Genesis, okay? Keep in mind as I say this, I went to college, okay? Hard things are hard. All right, you didn't get it. I'll say it again. Okay, ready? Hard things are hard. What does that mean? The seed, this promised one who's coming to set things right, gets a bruised heel, gets hurt by creation. Okay? This curse affects all of us. Jesus, the only innocent who ever lived, suffered. Some of you are suffering. And like, what did I do? What did I do? Hard things 
are hard. The curse, Jesus entered creation and took on the curse. Like he, he put it on like an old jacket. He bore the curse of creation for us and got a bruised heel. Okay? Right out of the gate, the Bible is trying to correct this ancient theology that says, if I do well, the gods will be pleased with me. If I just give enough money, if I just am at enough church activities, God will bless me. Maybe, but also, that's totally wrong. Hard things are hard, okay? Now, we don't get out of Genesis 3 just yet. Remember we said God is gracious? Poof, isn't that gracious? He keeps being crazy gracious. Men and women are about to experience something called exile. Exile is being kicked out of your homeland, okay? Listen to this, though, as they get sent into exile. This is in verse uh, 22, Genesis 3.22. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat. Why? What's, what are the next three words? And live forever. Okay? So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. God sent the man and his wife out into the wilderness. That's a natural consequence for their sin. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. You'll be separated from God. God lives here. You can't live here. All right? But even sending people into exile is an act of amazing grace. Why? Because God didn't want them to reach out. Ooh, see? Creation. Ah, things are not right. You hear Lucille? Ah, there she is. See? Creation's not right here. But come back. All right? Come back. I got you guys. We got this. You're doing great. Creation, the fall, God, God says, hey, things are not right. You have to receive the natural consequences of your actions. But even in giving you those consequences, I'm being merciful. Because if you eat the tree of life, you won't die. And you'll be stuck in this state of brokenness and sin for forever. That's mercy. God is being merciful even as he lets us experience the consequences for our sin. Do you see that? The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in hesed. That's that's the word for grace. Even in the fall, there's a ton of grace. We're not supposed to embrace the fall. We're not supposed to be like, yeah, life is hard. This is great. I love it. No, we're supposed to reverse the cursed people. We're also not supposed to deny the fall and say to suffering people, it's okay. It's not okay. But even in that situation, God is abounding in loving kindness. Even if we get killed by this bird. Oh, my gosh. True story. This is just a true story. Like we got we to take a tangent. I've already lost you. Uh, I have, I'm deathly afraid of birds. Like, so my, uh, I call her my California mom. She has like a, like a dozen exotic birds. And what she would do is like I would be at her kitchen table and she would just walk by with like this massive, I don't know, parrot. And I would just, boop, and I would like fall under the table. So someone catch me if I fall. That's all, that's all that's there for. All right. So the downward spiral has started. Okay? Now, there's a motif that starts in Genesis chapter 4 that you have to catch because it sets you up through the whole Hebrew Bible. Genesis 4.1. Okay, there were none of these in the early service, but please, there's got to be somebody in the late service. Does anybody read from the NASB? Okay, yes, Tom. We're gonna, we're, we got this. Okay, Here, I'm going to read the NIV and just help me out here, okay? Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Now, in the NASB, when it says, I have brought forth a man, that with the help of the Lord, is that in italics? Yes. Can I get a witness? Okay. Here's what happens, folks. When the, N- the NASB is awful English. It's awful English, but it's the closest to the Hebrew, Okay. I love the NASB. It's great. The English is really clunky, though, okay? And I'm not saying that they said that. The translator said this. This is clunky English, but it's the closest to the Hebrew. So if you want to get closest to the Hebrew, read the NASB. It's fantastic. But one of the things they do to smooth things out is they put words in italics, okay? Whew. 
All right. Is he, can we see her? Yeah. Guys, multi-sensory preaching, all right? I want you to really understand when we leave here today, creation and humanity are not as they should be, all right? We're going to move that into our bones, right? All right. So when words are in the italics, it's the translators trying to smooth things out. But sometimes, not always, but sometimes they add their own theology. And it's a weird verse in Hebrew. Here's what Eve really says. I have gotten a man, the Lord. You're like, what? Eve thinks she gave birth to the one promised in Genesis 3.15. Okay? She thinks, here's the guy. He's going to make everything all right. All right? That's why Genesis 4 is colossally disappointing. Cain is the one she thought was going to set everything right. Is it down? Is it down here? Okay. Oh, good. It, it won't come out. All right? Trust me. All right? Cain was the one she thought was going to make everything right. Does he? What? No. What does he do? Yeah. A Florida man murdered his brother. First guy, Cain, right? Okay? The downward spiral is continuing. All right? And here's, here's what's happening. Take note of this. It moves from a man and a woman to a family. All right? Sin is never just you. It grows. It multiplies. It's a cancer to God's creation. All right? Let's get into a weird chapter now. Genesis 5. Okay? Here's Genesis 5 in a nutshell. A bunch of people lived a thousand years, then 800 years, then 700 years. And we're like, whoa, what? Okay. Bear with me for a second. Remember, the Bible is not written to us, but for us. Great. Okay. You and I, you and I use genealogies differently than these ancient people who lived thousands of years ago use genealogies. Okay. You and I use genealogies like this. Oh, hey, I just found out my family owns a castle in Scotland. Isn't that so cool? But my great-great-great-grandfather, like, lost the deed, right? You all know somebody like that. You all know somebody like that. I can't be the only one. Every time I'm like, hey, I took 23 Me, and my family owns a castle. What happened? Somebody lost the deed. And it's like, pfft. Is that really? That can't be happening to all these people I know. And, like, I would not brag about that. Like, we were wealthy, and then we just misplaced a piece of paper. Like, okay, that can't be everybody, okay? All right? That most certainly is not how these people use genealogies, okay? And again, what I'm about to say, what I'm about to say may be a little unnerving, but remember, we're trying to get the authorial intent. We're not trying to bring our own agenda to the text. We're trying to say, what does the text say? The genealogies, okay, there's a genealogy from Cain's family, and there's a genealogy from Seth's family. The seventh child of each of those lines one is a guy named Lemek in Cain's line. Lemek is the Hebrew word for king. They just like jumbled up the letters. Melech and Lemek. Okay, so he's like a bizarro king and he's really bad. The seventh line from uh, Seth is a guy named Enoch. And he doesn't die, he just goes to heaven. All right? Okay, that's unusual. Like the, those sevens. Remember though, remember the book of Matthew, the number 14? Matthew skips a bunch of generations and moves things around. Some of us are like, the Bible's not true. The Bible is, no, Jesus is not a literal door. He's a real door. We can't read our standards back onto the text, okay? Now, there are two theories then about this genealogy. Let me walk you through both of them, and they're both great, okay? We assume that, we know, not assume, we know that on both sides of these theories about the genealogies, there's people who love Jesus, who are submitting to his word. They're not trying to find good and evil on their own. And they just think differently, okay? I'm trying to put the evangelical back in evangelical free, folks, all right? We're people who fight to keep the main thing the main thing, all right? Amen? Oh, my. All right, we can just be compass free, church. That's fine. But we come from a rich heritage of people who trust the authority of Scripture and fight to keep the main thing the main thing. I shouldn't have said fight that harsh. That sounded fine. We're, like, also very peace-loving people, okay? All right? Thank you. They don't have me on the website, all right? Um, I'm not the spokesperson, all right? Where were we? This bird is really... Okay, two views, two views. View number one says this. All right, so basically after the... the what did I do? All right. 
We're good. We're good. View number one says this. We're so close to Eden that the curse kind of like is wearing, or the blessing of the original creation is like wearing off. So that's why people are living so long. It's because they're so close to Eden. And as we get farther away, their lives get shorter. All right, that's view number one. And again, right, what do we say about these people? They love Jesus. They're trying to live under the authority of Scripture. They're not trying to define good evil for themselves. That's just how they see it. View number two says this. We have no idea how people use genealogies. And if you read ancient Mesopotamian genealogies, people live for like 20,000 years, 30,000 years, 5,000 years. And so maybe what Moses is trying to do is write a polemic against his culture to say like, hey, uh, you guys are getting it wrong, and we just haven't figured out what that is yet. But the main point is that people are dying. And so sin entered the world, and death through sin, and death spread to all. Look, this guy died. This is a good guy. He died, died, died. Devastating, devastating. Bad, bad. So we see, and guess which one I kind of, I'm like, 50, I'm like 55%, all right? On a scale of 100%. I'm in this side. I think what he's saying is like death went from a man and a woman to their family, and now everybody's experiencing the fall. And it gets so very bad. It gets so very bad. In Genesis 6, a guy has a kid and says, I'm going to name this kid Rest because maybe this kid will bring rest to the land. Who's Rest? What's Rest's name? Noah means rest. So remember, it's that motif. Is this the guy? Maybe this is the guy. And Noah gets super close, right? So men and women are polluting God's good earth. That's what Genesis 6 says. Everyone is doing violence and they're polluting creation. So what does God do? He lets people experience the natural consequences of their decision. They're polluting creation. They're destroying creation. God steps back and lets creation destroy them. All right? So when the, when the passage talks about the waters rising... It then says that the waters were above the surface of the deeps. What does that sound like? Genesis 1-2. The Spirit of God was hovering above the surface of the deep. God returned creation back to a pre-Genesis 1 week creation. Okay? And then what happens? Water goes down and Noah comes out of the boat. And what does he do? He plants a vineyard. Who are people who plant vineyards? Gardeners. It wasn't a trick question. Um, right? Who else was a gardener so far in this story? Adam. Here's a new Adam. All right? The rainbow. Uh, there's, there's no word for rainbow in Hebrew. It means like a bow, like a bow and arrow, archer bow. God lays his bow in the sky. He says, I'm not going to do that again. All right? Peace. All right? I'm putting my bow in the sky. All right? We're done here. We're done. That didn't work because the people are still evil. What happens to this new Adam? Is he going to be the one that's going to do it? Is he going to bring rest? Is he going to step on the serpent's head? No, he invents NASCAR. He gets drunk in his tent and lies naked out in the sun. All right? He didn't do it. So this motif of is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? No. Then what happens? Genesis 11, the people use the technology, the best technology they have, bricks. And they get together and they say, let's make a name for ourselves. All right, whose name is supposed to be great throughout the rest of the Pentateuch? Yahweh, that your name might be great. What are they doing? Let's be like God. They're eating from the wrong tree, okay? They're eating from the wrong tree. I put this up here. It's tiny. You can't see it. That's okay. I can't see it. But uh, in Genesis 11, verse, I think it's 11. Let's, let's check it out here just a second. But Genesis 11, there's a footnote. It's super important. Footnotes can save the world, folks. Genesis 11, start, it's verse 9. Okay, so here's what happened. They come together. They're all speaking the same language. God comes down and confuses the language, right? Okay? And what happens in verse 9? It says this. This is why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole world. Okay, what's going on here? That footnote is there because that word Babel, so the Hebrew letter B-B-L, is used 250 times in the Hebrew Bible. B-B-L, 250 times. 249 of those 250 times 
It's translated Babylon. Okay? And uh, they decided to put Babel because the Hebrew word B-L-L, it, it means confuse. So at Babel, God Balel. And you're supposed to chuckle. Uh, and it kind of keeps it in the English. That's why they, the translators did it, because Babel, like we're a babbling brook, right? It, that kind of keeps it. But don't miss it. This is the Tower of Babylon. And we see the creation of the anti-God culture. Babylon becomes an archetype or a symbol for the unrighteous city, the godless city. And it's the main bad guy throughout the whole rest of the narrative. Okay? This is the city of sin's origin story. Okay? All the way up, like, it does, I mean, Babylon gets destroyed. The actual nation of Babylon gets destroyed. But even in Revelation 18, who's the bad guy? Babylon. Where she ultimately gets destroyed. This is an archetype for the bad the badness. Okay, trigger warning. All right, here we go. Ready? Social justice, okay? Not everything that happens in the name of social justice is biblical. Thank you. Thank you. All right? But all biblical justice is social. Amen. Okay? The problem with sin is it's not just an individual problem. Sin has now built a society. A society of, of here's what it looks like to live in this society. We determine right and wrong for ourselves. We are going to be the society that eats from this tree. That's our identity. We're going to be like God. We're going to determine good and evil. We're just going to give in to that primal human temptation to determine right and wrong for ourselves. Look, I grew up in, I grew up in post-Christian New England, okay? I would drive by tons of churches my whole life that were totally empty. Churches, whole churches can embrace Babylon. They can say, yeah, 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 God's word says this, God says this, but we're going to determine right and wrong for ourselves. And when you do that, when you do that, you're on your way to post-Christianity. All right? Went to seminary in Louisville. Louisville's full of empty churches. Why? Because churches bought into this lie. Nothing kills a church faster than saying, let's just let people determine right and wrong for themselves. All right? And, and that's called deconstruction. Well, it's not called deconstruction, but what, how we're experiencing it today is through deconstruction. What is deconstruction? Deconstruction is where we look at something and it's problematic. All right, there's problems here. All right, there's problems here. So what do we do? What do we do with those problems? Well, we, we start to pull things apart. We get it back to its skeleton, and then we then we add it on differently. We reconstruct it, okay, for a different goal. Hopefully, now deconstruction. We're Protestants here, okay. Protestantism is built on deconstruction. Okay, Martin Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, all these guys were like, hey, y'all are getting it wrong. Let's, we got to get back to the skeleton and examine the skeleton, okay? Jesus also participated in deconstruction. He showed up to the religious leaders and said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Here's the fundamental difference, though, with deconstruction of, of the church and then a secular deconstruction. Deconstruction in the church looks like, hey, you're not actually living up to the Bible, all right, so deconstruction in the church that's good and healthy is like, hey, we all said we believe this, right? What you're doing doesn't line up with this. There's abuse of authority here. That's not how the Bible talks about authority. All right, that's a healthy deconstruction. We should always celebrate and embrace that. An unhealthy deconstruction, though, is when we take people who are eating from this tree over here, defining good and evil apart from Scripture, on their own, and then they come with those standards and say, church, you're getting it wrong. Now look, when people come to us with correction, we can listen, we can be humble. I think she has a friend. We can listen, we can be humble. Please don't miss that. All right? There are going to be people who have no Christian worldview at all and say, hey, I think you guys are missing it. And we can say, yeah, I think in, that, in, that, in God's common grace, I agree with you. I think you're right. 
But here's the thing, though. Deconstructionism has created a ton of doubt in the church. A ton of doubt. You and I don't live in the same world Martin Luther lived in. Like, Martin Luther couldn't imagine not believing. You and I can't imagine living in a world where we don't interact with our doubts. Okay? In all that doubting, which I have experienced, you very rarely, you very rarely hear people encouraging you to doubt your doubts. To doubt the secular narrative that creates a lot of this. You very rarely hear that. It's like, oh, well, the Bible, it just is magical fruit and snakes. We're modern people. We don't believe that. Let's tear that apart. Right? And it's like, wait, wait, wait. I have questions about secularism. I have questions about this anti-supernatural worldview that seems to think everyone that's come before us is totally, like, dumb. Right, can, we, can we ask questions about that? In seminary, remember I had shared last week that I was getting blown away by the story of Scripture. So I, I'm sitting in the back of the class, and I'm like, this is amazing. If people heard this, I mean, I just think they would, this could change the world, right? Fast forward, I'm in seminary, and a good, great thing about seminary is you're supposed to read outside your tribe, okay? It challenges you. It helps you grow. It's great. So I'm reading a secular Old Testament historian, and he's showing me all these connections. It's beautiful. It's awesome, right? He's like, oh, hey, so... You know, Abel, he died early. The name Havel means breath. And you're like, whoa, that's super cool. That's a cool detail. And they say, hey, there's all these things about wells in the ancient Near East. Like, so, you know, Jacob meets his wife at a well. Isaac meets his wife at a well. Moses meets his wife at a well. And that's kind of like a motif in the ancient Near East, like superheroes. You know, it's kind of like when Superman goes behind a phone booth, we know what he's doing. That's what that's like. And I'm like, that's super cool, right? I'm totally tracking with him. I like him. I'm following him. Then this sentence comes. And they're able to do this because the Bible's all fiction. Like, I just remember the room getting hot and like, whoa, what if this is all not real? Oh my gosh, what, what do I do? I don't know what to do with this. I'm experiencing deconstruction, okay? And I share this with you, not to create your own doubts about scripture, but to tell you what's on the other side of deconstruction, reconstruction. What happens a lot of times in deconstruction you know, we grow up, everybody thinks like us. We go out into the big, wider world, and we meet people who don't think like us. And we can do one of two things. We can ignore it. Everybody thinks like me. This isn't happening. This isn't real. I just got to get back to my people. Or, or we can be like, yeah, everything I learned, that's garbage. Woo! Or we can be honest and bring our doubts to the text and to the God of the text. When you meet people who've experienced deconstruction and came out on the other side, saying like, yeah, I, I, got, I got my bell rung, all right? And I came out on the other side, there's a deep humility. Like, they, they still have convictions. Like, yeah, I, I, this is how I read it, this is how I see it. But there's not a harshness to them. There, there's an empathy, there's a sympathy. People have doubts. This is hard. Oh, but I, here's what I want you to see what I'm seeing. There's a, there's a generosity. There's a graciousness. There's a Christ-likeness. And because, because we live, because post-Christian America is not a thing that's far off anymore, and it's coming sooner and sooner and sooner, we all have to deal with doubt. And we can be a community that either buries those doubts, doesn't talk about them, or we can bring them to the light and say, I have questions. What do you think God wants me to do with these questions? And we come out on the other side, ironically, more Christ-like. Look, why I said we're evangelicals and we keep the main thing the main thing, there's people in this church who believe one thing about creation. There's people who believe other things. There's people who believe this about the end times, that about the end times. And you know what? I'm not trying to say that doesn't matter, but it's not the main thing. Knowing Christ and him crucified, that's the main thing. And even in those doubts, even in those hard times, we can, he's with us. As C.S. Lewis said, the darkness makes us cry out to him. And that changes who we are. How did I get out of deconstruction? In a really odd way. I have these odd interactions with Old Testament professors. They're like really blunt. But Peter Gentry, he was my mentor in seminary. He was a wild guy. He, uh, 
He taught me how, like, I'd be at his house, and I'm, this is no exaggeration. He'd throw me a Greek New Testament and just be like, open to Philippians. Now read. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, right? There's nowhere to, I just, okay. And then I would, like, mistranslate a word. He'd be like, why did you think that? I'm like, I don't know. I, didn't, I thought we were having muffins. Like, what's happening? All right? Really harsh guy. Awesome. He's like the nutty professor. Like, he'd be seen running around campus like this. And his, you know, one tail hanging out and papers, like, flying behind him. Okay, this is that professor. We go to church together. After church one day, he's talking to a pastor at the church. And they're disagreeing about a text. And uh, the pastor's like, look, I, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I know you're saying the author didn't intend that, but this is, this is what it is. Okay, this is, and Peter turns to me and says this. He says this. Craig, I just have a higher view of inerrancy than this guy does. Like, right in front of the guy. Right? And that's a weird statement, but he had no idea I was going through this deconstruction moment. And just, the Spirit of God just, oh, I can trust the Bible. Don't doubt in the dark what God has made clear in the light. What did God make clear in the light? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That's clear. I have questions about some of the details, but when I back up, I'm like, whoa. He's good. He's trustworthy. I use that big word, inerrancy. What does that mean? That means the original, what, what Paul wrote, what Nehemiah wrote, the original autographs are free from error and you can trust them and they are trustworthy in what they intend to teach. All right? That doesn't mean I always get it right. That doesn't mean my interpretation is inerrant. But that means this text is inerrant. We can trust it. Just like that. Whew. Reconstruction. Let's start building this again. Speaking of reconstruction, the church, I mentioned Acts 2. You thought I forgot about it. You thought the bird threw me in my concentration. Little did you know, I took a public speaking class and I know how to handle distractions, okay? All right. Acts chapter 2. How is Acts chapter 2 Bizarro Babylon? Okay, you know Bizarro Superman, he's like Superman but different. In the Tower of Babel, we see all the nations coming together, speaking one language, and then they get sent away speaking different languages. In Acts chapter 2, we see all the nations coming speaking different languages, and when they meet together, they speak the same language. He's undoing Babylon. Here's another thing that happens, okay? Luke uses this word in Acts chapter 2, pane. Okay, pane. There's only one other time that the Greek Old Testament uses the word pane. It means wind, spirit, breath. And it's in Genesis chapter 2 when God breathes the pane, the breath of life, into man and woman. So God calls people out of Babylon and makes them new creation. The old creation was under the curse, the old Adam. This new Adam comes and makes a new creation, makes all things new. And the story hints at that again and again and again. Why I said that Genesis 3 through 11 is one unit, because the word curse is mentioned five times in that passage. Once to the serpent, once to the ground, once to Cain, uh, I think the I don't know what five is. Five, five is, I think, Lemek maybe. And then, no, don't, actually, that's not right. And then nine is uh, Ham. All right, five times the word curse is mentioned. God calls Abraham. We're dipping into next week a little bit. Where does God call Abraham out of? Babylon. Okay. And what does he do? He blesses him five times. All right. He calls someone out of Babylon that had been cursed five times and blesses him five times. There are people in this room who have been called out of Babylon. And our job now is to make Babylon a ghost town. Okay. There are people in this room who have been called out of Babylon. And our job is to be people who reverse the curse. We're all about life. There's no life in Babylon. Come into this new creation and experience life. Experience the blessing of God. 
Experience a God who loves you and is for you. He doesn't use his word to keep things from you. He's teeming with life. There's life at his side. Your goal is not to be like God and make as much money as you can and rule your little empire. Your goal is to be with God. True happiness. Like the psalmist says. He says this, oh, you know, life, it's better to be with you than a thousand days elsewhere. At your side are pleasures forevermore. Life is found with this God. That's the main thing. That's, that, is, that is what it means that we are compass evangelical free. We're going to work hard to keep that the main thing. I wish I could say that in 2020 and 2021, churches were totally shocked by all this infighting and division. I wish I could say that. Tragically, many churches lead the way in fighting and in, in all this infighting. It's like, oh, hey, Babylon, do you need help with divisions? We've been doing this for years. No, that's not who we are, church. The Satan, the enemy, the adversary loves, 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 loves a frozen church. That's not us. That's not us. We are reverse the cursed people. And we are going to put a population zero. Well, not really. That, that's coming in Revelation. But we would, our goal, we want to put a population zero on the Babylon's town sign. Let's get people out of there. And next week, if you come back, you're going to hear how somebody here in town is working to do that at the University of Missouri. All right? Sound good? All right. Let's pray. Father in heaven. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we are, we are participants with you in this new creation. That we experience life when we are with you. And that we can be reunited because your son, your son entered this creation, took the curse upon himself, and set us free. God, I pray that we would say yes to you. That we would trust you. And we would give ourselves in surrender to you. Ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. This sermon is part of the ministry of Compass Evangelical Free Church in Columbia, Missouri. We seek to be a church where Christ's love is at work transforming lives through the power of the Spirit to the glory of God. For more information, check out compassefc.com.